Hey, one more thing before you go. Have you ever wanted to know what it's like to be on the front line of war searching for IEDs and bombs? What does that do to your psyche? What happens after spending two tours of duty in a war zone and you have to readapt to civilian life? How does being a soldier in that situation create mental health issues that require attention? I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is That Thing About Being a Bomb Hunter. My guest in this episode served in the U.S. Army as a combat engineer from 2005 to 2010. He honorably did two tours in Iraq with the mission of conducting route clearance for safe movement of U.S. forces stationed in Point for Germany for three years, came back home, re-entered college, and wrote a book. Let's welcome to the show, Eric Herrera. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's quite a, that's quite a journey for a young man. Uh, yeah, I started when I was 19 years old and um, discharged when I was in my early 20s. Yeah, it's, it's really... Um, it's a uh, it's an honorable amount of duty that you spent over in a war zone. Actually, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in the Chicagoland area. Um, I lived in the city all my life. Um, I ended up uh, playing sports all through grade school and high school, um, but uh, college got cut short because uh, I was having too much fun and. That's when we, where I uh, joined the military. So your motivation for joining the military? My mother gave me an ultimatum. It was either uh, live at home, get a job. I did not want to do that. So I talked with other friends that joined the military, uh, talked with a couple of recruiters, and I decided I just wanted to get out and do that. What made you pick the Army? Um, my uncle uh, was a Vietnam veteran, and... Um, but I never really talked to him all my life. Um, when I went to him, it was actually the first time I ever had a conversation with him at 19. I had about an hour and a half conversation with him asking about the army. Um, as I said, I told him I wanted to be a combat engineer. He as well was a combat engineer in Vietnam too. So he gave me uh, different details on what I would be doing, things like that. But the times have changed since Vietnam and now, so the combat engineer role evolved um, from Vietnam. Yeah, it's an interesting MOS, actually. Um, the So when you went went to the recruiter and you joined, you were able to pick the your MOS as a combat engineer? Uh, yeah, I was just uh, breezing through all the jobs and uh, saw combat engineer and the description for it was building fortifications and clearing minefields and being a kid, I always like building things. So that's what I thought I would be getting into, but that's not what I ended up doing. <laughs> clearing minefields is another, uh, kind of like a, it's a very unique job actually. Uh, uh, with those instincts, it was more of, uh, the job title during world war one and world war two. So we used a lot of equipment, uh, and training on how to clear minefields and things like that. But um, being in Iraq and everything like that, there wasn't necessarily minefields. It was IEDs on the side of the road. You know, it, um, let's talk about that in just a little while. If that's okay. I think, I think I've got some questions that are brewing in my head that uh, 
I, I think would be interesting to kind of follow up with, if you don't mind. Uh-huh. So do you think that was uh, like a turning point in your life when you joined the military? Um, absolutely. I, I look back at it now and I have no idea where I would be if I didn't join. Um, I don't regret it in the one, in the least bit. Um, but it was uh, a shock for me because when I joined, I was a real heavy set kid. So I needed to lose a lot of weight before I even got to my unit. They do that in boot camp for you? Uh, yeah, in boot camp, I actually lost about 70 pounds in boot camp in a 16-week span. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's quite a bit. The uh, boot camp is uh, boot camp can be fun. It can be hard. So did you have a, what kind of a drill sergeant did you have to help you to lose all that? Um, being the biggest guy, I was the main target by a lot of the drill sergeants, so they noticed me right away. So any anything you could think of, of calling someone fat, things like that, getting in my face. And I'm, I'm a tall guy too, so I'm about 6'3". So, I mean, they would be in my face all the time saying they uh, want to beat me up or things like that. So it was, but being in sports through high school, I was used to having coaches in my face all the time. So the drill sergeant thing never really bothered me. Did that motivate you at all? Um, yeah, it did. It, uh, I realized that I was losing weight at a fast rate and, um, I wasn't eating a lot in basic training. I was just eating kind of the bare minimum because I knew I was burning so much calories that I was losing all that weight. And a lot of the guys saw that I was losing this weight. So they decided to do the same thing I would be doing, but there were a lot smaller guys. So they said that now we need to eat more. Uh, in order to keep our strength. So, I mean, it would, I'd be losing, geez, like almost five, between five to 10 pounds almost every week, almost toward the end. And um, that was one thing the drill sergeant told me my first week there is that I would be losing weight, but I didn't think I'd be losing 70, 70 pounds in 16 weeks. That's kind of crazy. That's, a, that's an achievement, actually, when you look at it from that perspective. So, when you got done with uh, boot camp, did you immediately get assigned? I chose to go to Germany, um, and they accepted my request. Also, there was a, at least about uh, 30 other guys that ended up in Germany, and then a couple rotations after us. They were coming in by 30s every two weeks because the unit I went to was uh, was pretty much depleted from people leaving the army or going to other units. Do you make any lasting friendships? Uh, yes, I have ton still to this day. Um, one of them ended up being my best man. Um, I still keep in touch with a lot of them. They live all across the country. Uh, try to visit them every couple of years and things like that. So it's with the power of, um, technology now it's uh it's a lot easier to communicate with people yeah 21st century is wonderful isn't it that's what has allowed us to have a personal conversation mm -hmm. so tell me what what does a combat engineer do this day and age uh right now they um are doing route clearance which is basically looking for ieds um on the roads and 
having safe movement for all U.S. forces. So you and I know what an IED is. Some of my listeners may not understand what that is. Can you help us? It's an improvised explosive device. And that's typically placed in the ground or anywhere near where troops would be moving, either walking and or driving, correct? Um, Depending on the terrain, um, a lot of things in Afghanistan are uh, deep buried IEDs, so they're under the ground. Um, In Baghdad, a lot of the things we did was uh, just roadside bombs. But the thing is, in Iraq, there's trash everywhere. Even along the sides of the roads, there's like many landfills, and a lot of the IEDs are in these landfills, uh, covered in garbage, things like that. Come across IEDs that actually they would take a piece of the curb out and put the IED in the curb and plaster it around to make it look like the curb again. Um, we would have uh, also IEDs in cars. We would have IEDs in dogs and sometimes even humans oh that's crazy that's that's crazy so you guys use equipment for that or do you use dogs for that how did you accomplish that um we have uh vehicles um that were um from south africa uh they were rg31s um they were very large vehicles but the design of the vehicle on the bottom was a v-shape so the point of it was if something exploded underneath it that v hall would kind of deflect the shrapnel and things like that um one of our main vehicles uh is called the buffalo um i'm not sure if you've seen the first transformers movie i i did it's been a while but i did yeah um there's a scene in there where optimus prime is fighting a decepticon and it is a buffalo so yeah, our viewers can't see this but he's holding up a, a, so it's, it's a very, our listeners can't see this <laughs> it's a very large vehicle it's approximately over 50 feet long and what it specializes is it has this claw that's in front of the vehicle and we actually call this the spork because that's what it looks like and the thing was is if we found something in trash things like that there would be a a man in the vehicle, he would uh, take this claw and dig around it, move debris, things like that. And if we found that it was an IED, then we have procedures on how to take care of that. That's a really, it really has come a long way, actually, because I had an interesting conversation with an individual that um, served in World War II, and he had served there since he was like 16 years old. And um, they literally had to crawl on their bellies and stick a knife in the ground. Yeah, that's what we did in basic training. <laughs> and crawl on their belly, stick a knife in the ground. Uh, that's that's really interesting. You went to uh, Germany, and then from Germany, were you deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, no. When I first got to Germany, I was the first group of new recruits that came in. Um, I believe for the, the next two or three months, they were coming in and we were finally able to fill out the unit. Um, we were told we were going to go, well, I, I got to Germany in November of 2005. We were told we would be leaving in the, in the, the spring, but that didn't happen. Our date kept getting pushed back. And then uh, we finally deployed um, 
toward the summer fall of uh, 2006. And you went to, where did you deploy to? Uh, we deployed to Baghdad. Can you help me understand just a, uh, a little more of your unit, um, something like a combat engineer unit that you belong to? Is it a small unit, large unit, medium unit? Is it, is it a small group of guys? Uh, yeah, the we were actually um, a, a unit. So there was about 500 soldiers, usually combat engineers, especially in the States. There are, might be a platoon, so that's maybe 26 guys attached to an infantry unit. Um, that's how it is in the States. But since we were in Germany, we were one of the last um, full battalions of combat engineers. So I'm sure you had uh, friends and uh, colleagues and brothers and sisters that were within that group of yours? Oh, yes. I'm still friends with a lot of them till this day. Arena. So what was your first experience in finding an IED? Um my first mission, I went out, we had an IED uh, explode on the back of our convoy. So right out the gate, experiencing it, which I'm glad I did because, I mean, we, we go through training, hours and hours of training. And until you experience it, you really don't know what to expect. So I was fortunate enough to experience it on my first mission. It's got to be um, kind of harrowing going out every day in taking a route and um, not knowing what you're going to find or how you're going to find something like that, I'm assuming. Yeah, we went out between five to six times a week uh, every day. We would have constant rotations. We had three platoons. One would go out in the morning, one in the afternoon, and then one at night. So our vehicles were constantly being turned over, a lot of miles on them. The the main heroes of our deployments were our mechanics. The mechanics in our unit were top notch. I mean, we sometimes we go out on mission, the vehicle would get blown up, and by the next day, the vehicle will be back in the rotation. And these guys were absolutely heroes in what they did. They worked nonstop, and That's we couldn't do our mission without them. That's amazing. Uh, how long were your shifts? Missions would last between 8 to 12 hours, and that would be going down the road at 5 miles an hour. And Baghdad is a really large city, so we would have to cover a lot of ground. Do you normally just do this? You said you did it at night also. Is it more difficult, I'm assuming? <clears throat> um, at night, really don't have to deal with uh, civilians. Um, during the day, it does get kind of crowded with uh, uh cars and people walking around so you have to be a lot more vigilant at night um it's a little more relaxed but you do have to be vigilant because you never know what's out there because there's no there's only street lights on major roads so most of my deployment i was a gunner so i would have to rely on night vision and thermal uh thermal scopes to see what was going on around me yeah, a lot of my listeners um, are of an age that they don't remember if there were any conflicts going on during the time that you served. Can you help us understand, were there any conflicts between 2005 and 2010 that, that they can look up in a history book to kind of see where you're coming from? Um, yeah, well, 9-11 happened in 2001. Um, 
I was still in high school when that happened. And with the conflicts between us and them, there was also conflicts between uh, the people in Iraq, between um, some of the Muslim cultures. So Sunni and Shiites is another big thing. We were, where we patrolled, we were literally on the border of both of their provinces. So there would be a lot of times we'd find innocent Iraqis in the road, um, just uh, violence uh, against each other. So that was another thing we would have to deal with was violence between the groups, which was really unfortunate because um, we wouldn't be able to help these people, especially if we found an Iraqi lying in the street dead. It's custom that uh, non-Muslims can't touch uh, a person who's Muslim that's passed because that's desecrating the body toward them. So the hard truth of it was sometimes these bodies would be lying in the road for days, weeks. And the thing was, is that no one would pick them up because if someone did come pick them up, they would be targeted too. So that, that's other things that was kind of hard to deal with. Um, I mean, we want to help them, but we have to respect their religion. Yeah, obviously you were over there to do a job, but you have to respect the cultural aspects of what the environment brings to it as well. Mm -hmm. Were you over there at the time, uh, refresh my memory if you will please, with Salam Hussein? Uh, yes, I was there at the time when he was, uh, he was hung in late December of 06. We were actually out on mission when that happened. They hung him early in the morning. And what we remembered was all of a sudden the people came out and started cheering because they finally, he was finally gone. Um, that was really, really nice to see. It was just really, just all the people that were just celebrating that. That was a big deal at the time. The following February, I believe it was, is when Bush, uh, President Bush did the surge for the Iraqi forces. So that's when he sent an additional 20,000 troops into theater. And um, we experienced that. We noticed that a lot. Uh, we noticed it because uh, the lines at the chow hall were really long at that time. So it was harder to get your food and find a seat to eat. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's the unfortunate part when more people come in, eh? Yeah. So there's kind of, I'm assuming that these experiences created kind of a, a, not only an emotional, but a physical um, hardship, or did it create an environment that uh, started building upon you through your, uh, well, to be honest, your psychological aspect of why you were there and what you were doing? Being out every day, yeah, it did take a toll. Um, but we were at least able to get some days off. We unfortunately had an incident that happened Christmas Day in 06. Uh, we lost uh, three men on a night mission. Um, that was when things started getting really rough for us because we, we were down four guys. And being very close friends, just they're lost too, but we have to continue mission and uh, keep working. So we were fine with that. But I mean, still mourning our friends, it was really rough, especially for me, because shortly after that happened in uh, January of 07, I went on leave and um, I, I broke down a lot when I came home because I just lost real close friends. And... After my two weeks, I was ready to come back. I came back, and during when I came back, that's when the Super Bowl was going on in 07. So that was the Chicago Bears and the Colts, 
And I was a bit, real big Bears fan at the time, being from Chicago. And since we were on night missions, we were able to see the game because of the time difference. Uh, but unfortunately, that was the first time I ever got blown up. <laughs> so we, our mission got delayed even more, things like that. And it, it took another toll on me because I just got back from leave and I just got in a real serious IED incident. You're, you're comfortable with talking about that? Yeah. And I was, I was jitterish after a while. And then March came and we lost uh, another soldier during an IED strike and also another soldier who was seriously injured. So at this time, uh, we were really undermanned. We couldn't do our mission anymore. So we got rotated out. Uh, another platoon that was with us took over our operations, and we ended up doing um, uh, fob fortifications. In Baghdad, there is the large fob, and but outside... Within the city, there's smaller fobs, so there's houses together, and they have these big barriers. They're like 15-foot-tall barriers. So a lot of times, snipers would shoot into these little fobs. So one of our missions was is that we had to build these sniper screens. So adding six feet on top of these barriers at night to help protect uh, some of the guys that were walking inside. So what, toward the end of our deployment, a lot of us were really exhausted because being undermanned, I think by that time we were only getting one day off a month. And even when we got that day off, we had to do some kind of uh, duty that was on the fob. So we really weren't relaxing at all at this time. Yeah, it's interesting. People there here that are not in that or not in the military or not in a current conflict of any type. Um, I know that they don't quite understand what an individual goes through or a group of individuals that go through a team that goes through and the toll that it takes on somebody, both physically and emotionally, in dealing with that on a consistent basis. It's not like you get to work a 40-hour job and go home at night and have a nice dinner and watch old TV and put your feet up. No, it's kind of a continuing, like it's an everyday, 24-7 on with a little bit of time off. And um, losing friends and colleagues and brothers and sisters within that takes its toll as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, one of the problems I was having was is that a lot of the things that happened Christmas Day, the incident in March, a lot of things weren't being weren't being told, or there was some kind of false truth, things like that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book because a lot of the family members of these soldiers did not know what happened to them, and so being there both those incidences i wanted to tell the story and what actually happened um that was something that i really wanted to do and i've i still keep in touch with those family members they're practically my family too i i talk to them every couple of weeks and they're 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 grateful that they finally were able to hear what actually happened to their loved ones unfortunately death creates a bond unfortunately yeah it kind of uh, is fortunate and unfortunate. You can look at it as a double-edged sword, so to speak. It creates a bond. I do understand when, we, when we're done with this discussion, um, uh, I will share my experience with you. But this is more about you right now. So do you feel from your perspective, and when you look back on this, that you are experiencing or have experienced what people commonly refer to as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's, a, it's an issue that's not addressed well enough? Yes and no. Um, 
it's not talked about a lot, which is a problem. There are a lot of guys out there suffering, and I believe now the number has gone up. I believe it's every every day, twenty two soldiers take their own life. A couple of years ago, it used to be it was twenty one, so the number is going up. When I left, I I was struggling a lot, and I had no idea where I was going to go. And that's where I see one of the problems is, is that there aren't enough advertising or things out there to lead soldiers in the right direction. When I came home, I didn't even know there was a VA counseling service 10 blocks away from where I lived. I did not know that until maybe five years after I was living here. When I was going to college, I just so happened to come across someone that was with the VA and they told me about this place, and I went. At the time, I wanted to tell my story, but I I wasn't ready. When I was telling my story, I was sick to my stomach. Um, didn't even want to talk about it anymore. I, I told them, hey, now's not the time. I'll let you know. Um, five years later, I ended up writing the book, and that helped me tremendously. Um, I, I wrote it a year ago, and I felt so much better uh, and my healing and things like that, I'm still healing. I still have little quirks and things that bother me, but I work still working through them. Well, I think if it's okay with you, I'd like to help our listeners kind of understand what somebody with PTSD goes through, what what they're seeing, what they're experiencing, so that you know there are people who have family members or uh, friends or colleagues that may be experiencing the same thing, but they don't recognize what's going on and. They don't understand what's going on, and it might help them, I think, to give them opportunity to kind of maybe get involved to, yeah. um, to help them. Do you mind? The number one thing is drinking. That's the number one thing, and then after that, it is drugs. It's really, it's really important for family members to to find this information for their family members who are suffering through this. I mean, just give them some information, and if they want to deal with it. How they want to deal with it, that's fine. Um, but I, the one thing I really do think is that the military and the government needs to put this information out to soldiers and things like that. But they really don't. They, I mean, even commercials might even help. I, I never see any commercials about uh, PTSD. The only commercials I see about military is to join. But one of the th- one of the main things that soldiers go through is is that when they return home. They miss, they miss the military life. But when I say that is they don't miss the job. They miss the camaraderie. And that's a big thing. They miss being with their friends after work, doing whatever, things like that. Being, and a lot of these guys are from small towns too. So, I mean, communication with friends that they had. Luckily enough, we're in the 21st century now where we could actually talk to friends with your phone or online, things like that. Um, some of the stuff has to be put out there to help these veterans that are really suffering. I agree with that. And PTSD for anybody that, that I won't say anybody that's listening, for those listeners out there that really want to understand what it is, it is specifically what it says. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, it's a, an emotional and a physical toll on somebody that has gone through some sort of stress or traumatic incident or incidents within their lifetime that they are having complications with managing. 
So it's really, it's a, it can happen in many different aspects, not just in the military. There's police officers, firefighters, there are EMTs, there are not, not just the combat veterans, but there are nurses, there's doctors, especially in, in the, in the last, what, eight months, mm-hmm. you know, that, that they are, I, I have no doubt in my mind are going to be suffering the same type of, of uh, stress and traumatic stress that they need help with. So I will have some information in the show notes in regard to, you know, helping people to understand what to look for and how to approach that and maybe how to get somebody some help with regard to, to that. You took the option of writing a book for yourself. It, do you feel that, do you feel that the person who is experiencing this should um, open up and communicate? Would be, that be the first step? Um, that wasn't my first step. My first step happened last December. Um, I held in a lot of things. So I was out one night and I just completely broke down. I broke down in my kitchen. Um, just let every emotion I had out. At that point, I felt relief about that. But then I also wanted to tell my story. So I actually decided to make videos of the different incidences that happened while I was deployed and things like that. Um, that helped a lot. Just That was the start of it. I mean, I, I, all I did was just look into the camera and started talking. Um, but I felt that that wasn't going to be enough. So when I also heard about family members not hearing what happened to their loved ones, that's when I decided that I need to write it down on paper. So I decided to write it um, in January of 2020, and I finished it in March of 2020. It took me two months to just write it, because I just nonstop writing, uh, getting everything down. And I felt so much better about myself that I didn't have to carry all that pain and suffering anymore and just finally let everyone know what actually happened. Um, my own parents didn't even know what I did in the military, and reading my book was the first time they ever heard anything about it. So, I mean, it was just a real stress relief. I mean, I don't have to carry that burden anymore. It's a positive thing. What kind of things can we find in your book? Tell me about the book. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I talked about how I ended up joining uh, my time in basic training, uh, my time stationed in Germany, um, in-depth details about my two tours in Iraq and um, what decisions I made that that made me leave the military. Um, is, it's not a blueprint of every soldier, but it shows the emotion and... Um, physical stress that soldiers do go through. I'm just a small story in, in, a, in a big book. But, um, everyone has their own story, and that's one thing I encourage a lot of people to do. Tell your side. I mean, get it out there. A lot of people did not know what combat engineers were until I finally started talking about it. And people can't believe what we did. <laughs> the Just going in day after day doing this even after 
getting blown up. I mean, my, myself, I've been blown up twice personally. I have brothers that have been blown up three, four times. And it's, it was just a common, common occurrence for us. So, but the main thing for us to get through it was is laughter. I mean, it's, uh, it's a little disturbing that <laughs> we joke about it, but that was a way for us to get through the shock of it all. So like the, um, the old Bill Murray movie, Stripes, they ask where the drill sergeant went. They say, blown up, sir. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you have to have humor. Humor right. helps. Laughter that is the best medicine, as they mm -hmm. say. What's it like to be blown up? Um, obviously, you don't know what happens, really. I didn't, I didn't even know what happened until seconds later, I couldn't breathe and dust and dirt and everything's in my lungs. Um, it's like I said, I didn't even know what happened until <laughs> seconds later. Do you wear protective gear? Do you have, um, like the big bomb suits or do you just wear standard military issue with a vest? Uh, we have standard military issue. During my time, I was mostly a gunner. So I would be manning either 50 cal or 240 Bravo up in the gunner's hatch. And sometimes I would have to wear a face shield. During my second deployment, I actually had to wear a harness. It was a harness around my body, and the harness would be attached to the floor because a lot of problems were explosions were going off and gunners would be shot out of the hatch. And then when they would fall, they'd break their legs and things like that. That was probably one of the things I really didn't like during my time there, that, that harness... Um, Gave me a lot, still to this day, give me a lot of psychological things. Like, um, I can't wear a shirt and tie. I can't have things around my neck. I, I start panicking. I start sweating. That's one thing that probably is going to be the last thing I get over. <laughs> but, uh, I'm slowly gotten into polo shirts. So it's a slow process. But do you have any other methodologies for managing your stress, your post traumatic stress? One of the things I did was, I got into um, fish keeping. So I got into the saltwater hobby and I had a number of tanks um, in my basement. And that was always therapeutic for me. It was calming for me, just working on the tanks. I, I did it for five years. I stopped this year because it wasn't working for me anymore. I wrote the book. I didn't need that therapy anymore in my fish tanks which was kind of hard because I'd grown attached to a lot of the fish that I had and I had to give them away, but it just wasn't, I didn't need it anymore. So I, my other uncles were in the military too. My one uncle rode motorcycles. That was his thing. My other uncle photography was his thing. He would go on trips and just take pictures of wherever he visited. You have to find something. That's another thing that helps. You have to find something that will ease you, calm you, and um, it will get you through it. That's a positive thing. This is one more thing before you go. So before you go, do you have any words of wisdom for anybody that might be experiencing or going through the same thing that you went through? Talk. We always have that complex of uh, men should hold their feelings in because it's not manly enough. When I finally started talking, my friends were, didn't even know. I mean, they want they I, they would call me up all the time asking how I'm doing, things like that. You have to talk. There, you have friends there. I mean, you've been with these men and women for months on end. I mean, they'll listen. I mean, they're their friends. That's one thing that you have to learn.
Where can we find your book? Uh, my book is called uh, Bomb Hunter Story, My Life Clearing the Roads of Iraq. It is currently on Amazon right now for paperback and uh, Kindle. And you belong to a reader's group? Yes, I'm also on Goodreads. Uh, so if you type in goodreads.com, on the top you type in my book and it'll pull up my author page. On there, you could purchase the book too. And you could also ask me questions on things that you have, and I'll be gladly to answer anything. Well, Eric, I want to say thank you very much for your service. I respect you for what you've done, what you did for your brothers and sisters for this country as well. Um, so thank you. And thank you for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. No, thank you for having me. If you want a one-stop shop of everything, one more thing before you go, visit BeforeYouGoPodcast.com, where you can find each and every episode of One More Thing Before You Go, links to your favorite listening platform, subscribe and review options, as well as ex access to expanded show notes and guest bios. And as a special bonus, by visiting BeforeYouGoPodcast.com, you can purchase any book from one of our shows. It's a perfect resource for everything you need to listen, learn, and follow your favorite podcast. One more thing before you go on BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.